Thank you, brother, and thanks to each of you for joining us this week. And I want to say before we begin that this conference is always such a wonderful time for me personally. I've been able to attend uh, many times over the years, and it has been a personal blessing to me, but also uh, formative in, in many ways as together we sit and we hear uh, many of the truths of our confession uh, discussed in greater detail. If you would, let's turn our hearts and minds together towards the Lord as we pray, and then we'll begin this next session. Living God, we pray for your blessing upon our hearts as we consider, and our minds as we think. We pray that you would grant us um, what we need. Give me a clarity. Help us to continue to um, rejoice in the rich doctrines of your word. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Recently, Stanford scientist Robert Sapolsky said this, we've got no free will. Stop attributing stuff to us that isn't there. The LA Times this past month, writing on this statement, said that, quote, after more than 40 years studying humans and other primates, Sapolsky has reached the conclusion that virtually all human behavior is as far beyond our conscious control as the convulsions of a seizure, the division of cells, or the beating of our hearts, end quote. And yet here at our conference, we have affirmed in a variety of ways in just the two previous lectures that we believe that we do have free will. This discussion takes us to a variety of considerations, doesn't it? Consider our confession, chapter 9. There are words that relate to the will, but then there are concepts that involve a discussion of the connections beyond simply the will. Think in chapter 9, for instance, of the number of times that the word good is used. And just yesterday, sitting with our brother, Dr. Renahan, we were having a conversation and we were talking about the reality that even as, Lord willing, this conference next year will consider chapter 10, I was struck by the fact that in chapter 10 point one, the phrase, enlightening their minds, is used. What is, if there is at all, a connection between the will, the mind, the heart, the intellect? How do we consider these things? The title for my lecture this evening is a Historical Overview and Importance of Faculty Psychology. But what is faculty psychology anyway? Well, my task is to provide an overview of it, that is, faculty psychology, and to demonstrate why understanding it is important. When we use the phrase, to what are we referring? One way to define it would be perhaps to say this, that the human soul has several components which, while intertwined, can be distinguished by function. Let me say that one more time that the human soul has several components which, while intertwined, can be distinguished by function. 
Herman Bavink writes this, quote, faculties of the soul, whether two or three or more, indicate that the soul performs different kinds of activities and thus possesses distinct powers. But is this distinction merely an academic one? Is this just an academic exercise? Is it a mere theological or perhaps even psychological speculation? Or is it a regular theme in Christian literature down through the ages? I would argue the latter, that it is indeed in Christian literature down through the ages. Let me give you just one example as we begin. Take, for instance, just a sliver of church history, just one particular piece, that of the Reformation and Puritan era, and note how the idea of soul faculties is mentioned. For instance, just quickly, it shows up in Calvin in the Institutes, book one, chapter 15. It shows up in Many of the Puritans, Puritan Thomas Watson writes this, quote, that we may further see the nature of original sin, consider the universality of it. It has, as poison, diffused itself onto all the parts and powers of the soul. Original sin has depraved the intellectual part. Original sin has defiled the heart, the will. End quote. It's this from his A Body of Divinity. It shows up in a brockle from the Christian re, Christian's Reasonable Service. He writes this, quote, The soul of man is also gifted with a will, which is a faculty by which we can either love or hate. End quote. Listen to how... Nehemiah Cox describes the state of man following the fall. But listen closely. Quote, his mind was covered over, even possessed with hellish darkness. Hatred of God reigned in his heart, and his affections were no longer subject to right reason, but became vile and rebellious. It is evident that in this state he must be utterly incapable of communion with God and of the enjoyment of him in whom alone the true happiness of a reasonable creature consists, end quote. Now, I, I read that Cox quote just to point out the different parts that Cox mentions that seem to have different functions. But it's not just this sliver of... Christian history, wherein we find this idea of faculty psychology. It's in the writings of the ancients, the medieval writers, and modern writers as well. Thus, having an understanding of what faculty psychology is will, at a minimum, help us to understand their writings, but perhaps beyond this will help us to further our understanding of who we are as creatures before the living God. John Owen writes this, the powers and faculties of our minds being given to us only to enable us to live unto God, diverting of their principal exercise unto other ends is an act of enmity against him and an affront unto him, end quote. So I would propose the following outline for this short lecture. First, 
Let's look at a clear and working definition, at least that's my goal, a clear and working definition of faculty psychology. Secondly, let's observe how it has been uh, seen or how it has developed over the course of church history, and in some sense, in history in general. And then thirdly and finally, let us consider some practical reasons why a consideration of faculty psychology is important. So firstly then, brothers and sisters, a clear and working definition. Let me give to you that definition that I spoke of just a moment ago, and we'll work from there. Faculty psychology is the idea that the human soul has several components which, while intertwined, can be distinguished by function. Thomas Aquinas described the faculties as, quote, the proximate principle of the soul's operation, end quote. John Owen would say, state that the faculties are powers, abilities, qualifications, and endowments. Later, Bavink would write these words, by faculty we must understand nothing else than a natural capability of the soul for a certain type of mental activity, end quote. Anthony Hoykema writes, quote, a faculty is not an independent entity, but an ability which belongs to the soul and is exercised by the soul. Notice then that all of these various theologians, which span a variety of time in similar voice, describe soul faculties as powers or functions. But in saying that, what, what are the common so-called faculties that are involved in this discussion? Usually they include the intellect and the will, and sometimes, in some writers, the affections. Note, for instance, Abrockel's writing, the soul has its faculties whereby it is operative. Notice again the connection between faculties, that word, and operative, or operation. He continues, the soul has its faculties whereby it is operative, intellect, will, and affections. The existence of these can be intelligently deduced and considered individually. They are thus distinct from each other. The intellect is neither the will nor the affections. The will is neither the intellect nor the affections. Likewise, the inclinations are neither of these two. They are distinct in their operations. The intellect has the elements of comprehension, judgment, which is speculative as well as applicatory, and conscience. The will lovingly embraces, and let me just pause, we will come back to this idea throughout these lectures. But the will lovingly embraces those matters which are desirable and is repulsed by any matter which it perceives to be hateful. The affections are the soul's desires or yearnings for fulfillment. The soul can neither be its own fulfillment nor find delight and satisfaction within itself, but must find its fulfillment in something outside of itself. Now, I realize that's a lengthy quote, but I have to give you the next phrase of a brockel because it's a helpful guard in some sense. He says this, however, <laughs> however, even though one can deduce the existence of each by means of our intellect and consider them individually, 
which we must do if we, in an intelligent manner, wish to be conscious of our deeds and their nature, they are nevertheless not fully distinguished when man is operative. If we make too much of a distinction in the operation of these faculties in man, we shall engender as much perplexity and confusion as when we intermix them, end quote. Perhaps a helpful guard as we think to consider these various powers or faculties. Ultimately, John Owen would make this argument. And this is helpful because notice the words that he chooses to use, the heart. The heart in the scripture is taken for the whole rational soul, not absolutely, but as all the faculties of the soul are one common principle of all our moral operations. Hence, it has such properties assigned unto it as are peculiar to the mind or understanding, as to see, perceive, to be wise and to understand, and on the contrary, to be blind and foolish, and sometimes such as belong properly to the will and affections, as to obey, to love, to fear, to trust in God, end quote. Bob Inc., for his part, has a similar take. Quote, the heart thus determines the direction of a man's life. It is the source and motive power of his consciousness and desire, of his intellect and will. All mental functions and activities of man have their center in the heart. The faculties and powers of man are many and manifold, but they find their center and source in the heart. Out of it are the issues of life, of the life of the intellect, of the feeling, and also of the will. Now, I give you all of those definitions just to try to make the argument that I'm not the first person, nor is it original with me, to say that faculty psychology, in a sense, is the argument that the soul has faculties by which it is operative. Perhaps there are better ways to define it, but we see it in the literature throughout the 2,000-year history of our family, the Bride of Christ. So let me give you that definition just one more time, and then I want us to move to an historical uh, development, a look at the historical development. So our working definition then of faculty psychology, the human soul has several components, which while intertwined can be distinguished by function. Well, let's then consider secondly, the historical development of this. Now, of course, I don't have time in this brief lecture to note every single instance, every single development. I'm gonna leave all of that to our brother Chuck. He's gonna do all of that over the next three lectures. No, but in all of these lectures, we can't touch on all the material that there is, but I just wanna take a moment and, and walk us through this development. Some of you will love quotes. Some of you perhaps would prefer less quotes, but I want us to consider how we see this developing. So for this, let's go all the way back to Aristotle. Aristotle spends much time in his De Anima dealing with the faculties of the soul. He argues that human beings have three major faculties. Now this is Aristotle, nutrition, perception, and mind. 
He would state that all living organisms have a faculty of nutrition, even plants. That animals have both nutrition and perception, but humans alone have, in addition to those two, the mind. It seems, though, that in his discussion, he entertains what perhaps may be a fourth faculty, desire. I say perhaps. It's not fully clear to me. Perhaps it is to others. But for instance, he writes this. Again, De Anima, quote, It is manifest, therefore, that what is called desire is the sort of faculty in the soul which initiates movement, end quote. Now, the concepts of faculties would develop past some of his discussion, for instance, this discussion of nutrition and plants and those kinds of things, but he is often a starting point for tracing the historical development of faculties, to which we perhaps need to ask this question. Maybe you're already asking it. Can we start with Aristotle? Can we utilize a pagan Greek philosopher as part of the discussion? Perhaps even the starting point of understanding something about ourselves alongside that of what the Bible declares? And to that, I would simply say this. Sometimes the ancient philosophers got some things right. Perhaps according to the light of nature or the God-given gift of reason. This sometimes gives us categories, and I'm going to use this word intentionally, that we can borrow from as we test these things alongside the scriptures. So I hope that we need not linger too long on the question of, Can we use Aristotle as a discussion partner in our journey considering faculty psychology? Richard Muller, in a lecture that he gave within the last few years at Puritan Reformed Theological Seminary on the topic of John Owen on reason, faith, and the structure of human cognition, writes this, quote, Owen's theory of cognition is not particularly original, end quote. Then he goes on to argue that he derives it from the tradition of, wait for it, Aristotle. So I I would argue that Aristotle is at least a helpful discussion partner in this journey. But it doesn't end with Aristotle. In fact, we're really only borrowing some terms, this idea of faculties. But let's consider the early church for just a moment. Just a a smattering of samples. Tatian in the second century in his address to the Greeks writes this, quote, the human soul consists of many parts and is not simple. It is composite so as to manifest itself through the body. Again, we're taking a survey. We're not analyzing each and every one of these sources. Tertullian, for his part, writes this in On the Soul, quote, We define the soul as born of the breath of God, immortal, corporeal, having shape, simple in substance, susceptible of the functions proper to it, developing in various ways, having freedom of choice, affected by external events, mutable in its faculties, rational, dominant, capable of presentiment, end quote. Now, again, you are going to see some development. You are going to see some differences. But let's move out of the first few hundred years into Augustine. Augustine develops a view that the human faculties, and this is interesting, mirror, in some sense, the Trinity. 
In De Trinitate, he uses the phrase, quote, the trinity of the mind. This seems to be picked up in some sense by Abelard, Lombard, Bernard of Clairvaux, and Aquinas in a variety of ways. But Calvin swiftly rejects the idea of this so-called Trinitarian mirroring. This is not to say that Calvin rejects the idea of faculties, but only that he doesn't follow the so-called Trinitarian mirroring of Augustine. In fact, in a moment, we'll see Calvin's use of faculties. But first, there's an important figure between Augustine, the medieval writers, and Calvin that we need to observe. And that is Aquinas. Now, our brother is going to be spending more time on Aquinas in a subsequent lecture, so I will only say this. Aquinas writes these words, the intellect precedes the will. Now, at this juncture, hopefully, you're able to see that we're talking about these faculties of the soul, intellect, will. The intellect precedes the will in one way by proposing its object to it. In another way, the will precedes the intellect in order of motion to act which motion pertains to sin. And that was from the Summa. So I hope, I hope by now we're seeing that the discussion of faculty psychology, if you've never heard of it, is not a modern term that is related to the field of psychology from the late 1800s forward. But it's been part of the tradition. It goes all the way back even to Aristotle in some sense, but it's carried all the way through a variety of writers. And while we desperately want to understand what the reformers thought on this issue, they were not the only ones to have thoughts on this issue. Now, Calvin. Calvin argued that the soul had two main faculties, the intellect and the will. Listen to what he writes in the Institutes. Quote, the soul consists of two parts, the intellect and the will. The office of the intellect being to distinguish between objects according as they seem deserving of being approved or disapproved, and the office of the will to choose and follow what the intellect declares to be good, to reject and shun what it declares to be bad. In this discussion, by way of context, there is a connection to Plato alongside a discussion of Aristotle in Calvin's section where that is drawn from in the Institutes. Perhaps you've come across the recent work within the last five years by Matthew Lapine entitled The Logic of the Body. In this recent work, Lapine helpfully distills Calvin's use of terms in relation to the faculties as he writes these words. In general, when Calvin had faculties in view, he saw the biblical term heart, referring to will, and the term mind to intellect. But this is not without exception. End quote. And what you will begin to see, at least in this discussion, and as you read in the literature, is that there is a common understanding of faculties. But there may be different words and even disagreement as to what all of those faculties are. And sometimes biblical words like heart and mind will be used and associated in some sense with the discussion. Lapine, again, in Logic of the Body, will later critique Calvin and argues that Calvin insufficiently considers the body's possible 
qualifications on the faculties, and that there is benefit in considering Aquinas's tiered approach. He respectfully wishes to incorporate Calvin, at least that's my view of what he's doing. He respectfully wishes to incorporate Calvin, but retrieve more than what Calvin offers as just Calvin. Perhaps an example for the need of retrieval in this area of theology. Now, brothers and sisters, this is just a small sampling of the historical development as we've moved from Aristotle all the way forward to Calvin. We have obviously heard of some later authors, Abrockle, Bavink, and others. But at this juncture, perhaps you're considering this question, is this really of practical importance? I, I mean, we can say that yes, throughout the history of the church in our literature, it is, well, <clears throat> everywhere. But is it of practical importance? And what I wanna do is just give you four or five uh, reasons why I think that this is of practical importance. And the this is faculty psychology and understanding it. So thirdly and finally, let's consider practical importance. Here's one reason why I think understanding the faculties or faculty psychology is of practical importance. Number one, it helps us to understand the nature of sinful human beings. Now, one qualification here is to say this. When I say that, I'm not saying that faculties of the soul only came into existence after the fall. But that when we consider sin and human nature, having a clear picture of the faculties helps us. Now, let me just, if, if you will allow it, let, let me just give you one particular example of what I mean. So the first area of practical importance is understanding the nature of sinful human beings. For this, let me turn to Turretin in his Institutes of Atlantic Theology. You know Turretin. Second question, this is what he writes, quote, second question, whether the voluntary is of the essence of sin, we deny against the papists and Socinians. Later he writes this, and listen closely. The very first motions of concupiscence do not cease to be sins, although they are neither holy W-H-O-L-L-Y, wholly voluntary, nor in our power, end quote. Now, I don't want to introduce another lecture or give our brother Chuck more work to do in a subsequent lecture. I'm just using the Turretin example to, to, to say that when we understand the faculties, when we're reading this kind of material, it, it will help us to have a construct for will, intellect, and perhaps affections, depending on who you're reading. Consider Davenant in a treatise on justification, quote, although the faculty of desire, interesting, faculty of desire itself is not sin, yet the inclination and propensity of it to evil is sin. And then listen to the very practical example that he gives. Even in one asleep, when it does not at all actually incline to sin. And of course, this I'm going to limit myself here because this takes us to a larger conversation, doesn't it? But my argument is having an understanding of intellect, will, perhaps affections, 
will help us as we read this material and as we consider ourselves as sinful individuals. Bavink in Reform Dogmatics, quote, there is not only an antecedent, but also a concomitant, a consequent, and an approving will. Later, to a greater or lesser degree, the will approves of the sinfulness of our nature and takes delight in it. Even the sin that is done without having been willed does not occur totally apart from the will. End quote. I know all of this is, is, is a mouthful, but you see, as we read these theologians, these pastors, in some cases, these physicians of the soul down through the ages, it's helpful for us to have an understanding of the faculties because it helps us to understand in a sense, perhaps to a greater degree, the inner workings of our own sin. I'll keep this one brief because I think sometimes when we talk about free will in general, we, as has already been mentioned, we may limit it to this question of soteriology, but another practical reason why I think understanding faculty psychology is important is it does help us to understand, let me say it this way, if you'll allow it, the inner or internal workings of salvation, humanly speaking, and here's what I mean. Let's hear Abrockel out on this. He says this, quote, In the internal call, God works in a manner which is consistent with man's nature. Man is a rational creature who, gifted with intellect, reasons about matters which he encounters, judging whether it is needful or beneficial to have, pursue such matters. If he judges affirmatively, he will also exercise judgment concerning time, place, and means. That is, when, where, and in what manner. This is referred to as one's practical judgment, for it presents and limits the matter in such a fashion to the will that the will spontaneously embraces the proposition. End quote. Now, that's just one systematic theologian. There are many we could give, and I don't, I don't want to move into too much of a discussion of the internal workings of salvation, but even as we consider that doctrine, the doctrine of salvation, understanding what is meant by powers of the soul, the intellect, the will, can aid us. So thus far, we've seen that the practical benefits are, A, understanding the nature of sinful human beings to a greater degree, and B, and, and very quickly, understanding perhaps the internal workings of salvation. But perhaps one that I think is even more helpful to think about and meditate on is this one. I think it helps us to understand, thirdly, the process of spiritual growth. Here's what I mean. We know what Romans 12, 1 and 2 says. We are reminded of the need for our minds to be renewed. Calvin again says this, quote, the intellect is to us, as it were, the guide and ruler of the soul, that the will always follows its beck and waits for its decision in matters of desire, end quote. Now, what I want to do is just hold the renewing of our minds out there for just a moment. Calvin is making the argument that the intellect 
in a sense, is a guide. Hold that there as well. Again, a brockle, quote, the will is a blind faculty which can only will that which is comprehended with the intellect. Presenting the matter here and now in its desirability, necessity, and profitability, the will is thus also free and cannot be compelled to will something. It cannot be compelled to do something except the matter be embraced by the intellect and is presented as being desirable. Now think about this. The renewing of our minds, the intellect as a guide, the intellect helping the will in a sense or informing the will to what is desirable. Modern day theologian and pastor Mark Jones helpfully discusses thoughts and the will when he writes this, quote, we can never excuse our unclean thoughts or desires just because they are not voluntary acts. The will in a certain sense is always at work since as humans we are never not willing. To be is to be willing. In addition, those involuntary sinful desires that occur are the result of certain patterns of thinking we cultivate in our lives. And brothers and sisters, this is where this discussion of will and intellect starts to get very practical. If we are, and this is Jones, if we are often meditating upon sinful thoughts, we should not be surprised at the involuntary sinful intrusive thoughts that take place. End quote. He gives a variety of biblical passages. I want to just look at one for just a moment. Turn with me to Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8, verse 22. You remember, I won't read all of the narrative of Acts chapter 8, but you remember Simon baptized, verse 13 of Acts 8, continuing with Philip. And in verse 13, we read that he was amazed, seeing the miracles and signs which were done. And he's following along with the disciples, with the apostles. And in verse 18, we read these words. And when Simon saw that through the laying on of the apostles' hands, the Holy Spirit was given, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also that anyone on whom I lay hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, your money perish with you because you thought that the gift of God could be purchased with money. You have neither part nor portion in this matter, for your heart is not right in the sight of God. Repent, therefore, of this your wickedness and pray, God, if perhaps the thought of your heart may be forgiven you. Well, we can read... And Jones, in this writing, makes reference to this in Isaiah 55, 7, the idea that even thoughts can be repented of. One more quote on this idea, the spiritual growth, understanding the will and the intellect, and perhaps the connection of thoughts. Thomas Goodwin writes these words, Thoughts, quote, are the first motioners of all the evil in us, for they make the motion and also bring the heart and object together, are panders to our lust, hold up the object till the heart has played the adulterer with it, and committed folly, 
So in speculative uncleanness and in other lusts, they hold up the images of those gods they create, which the heart falls down and worships. They present credit, riches, beauty, till the heart has worshipped them, and this when the things themselves are absent, end quote. Now, I give all this to you to say that we said just a moment ago that a third reason why I think it's of practical importance to have a little understanding as to what faculty psychology is, what that concept is, is the understanding of the process of spiritual growth. Perhaps I could propose it to us in these ways or this way, that one way to think about spiritual growth as it relates to this discussion of faculty psychology might be this. Again, go back to what we've put out there on hold, the renewing of our minds, the intellect informing the will. Perhaps one way to think about spiritual growth with these terms in view would be this, that the word, the scriptures, inform the intellect. The intellect informs the will. And ultimately, the desires. This change in perceived desirability impacts the will. Say that again. The word, or scripture, informs the intellect. The intellect informs, well, desire. This change in perceived desirability impacts the will. On the one hand, we can say with Paul that our minds need to be renewed. But in another sense, when we find these biblical concepts of intellect and will, or perhaps, as others would say, of heart and mind, we can begin to do a little bit of the work of thinking about the impact, even of things like the scriptures, the word, the word preached, the word read, the word sung, on our understanding, on our intellect. Remember Abrakel, quote, the will is a blind faculty which can only will that which is comprehended with the intellect, presenting the matter here and now in its desirability, necessity, and profitability. He goes on to say again, the will is thus also free and cannot be compelled to will something. It cannot be compelled to do something except the matter be embraced by the intellect and is presented as being desirable. Well, quickly, as our time is moving past us, a fourth reason why I think that this is of practical importance is that we can, when we consider the human will, the human intellect, perhaps if you go with some writers, another faculty of affections, we can, fourthly, appreciate what Christ has redeemed. Charnock writes this in his work, The Sinfulness and Cure of Thoughts. Quote, there is an imperfection in the best thought a regenerate man has, because it is not with that raised affection to God or intense abhorrency of sin. Brothers and sisters, if I could just take a moment and encourage you with something of great practical importance. Look on the Lord Jesus Christ. See in him, according to his humanity, a sinless, a sinless intellect, a sinless will, 
desires and affections that were untainted by sin. See in him who has become our righteousness, 1 Corinthians 1.30, a glorious substitute. And when you see in your own faculties and a continued remaining sin, look to him who is our substitute. Don't look upon him as simply your substitute for outward behavioral sins, but as your substitute in the innermost faculties of the soul. Faculties polluted by the filth of sin, of rebellion against God. Who knew that we could consider these kinds of concepts to include this term faculty psychology and ultimately come down to the reality that in doing so, we can appreciate what Christ has redeemed. We can, as it were, savor the Savior. So yes, I think there are practical reasons why we should consider understanding a little more together what faculty psychology is. Lastly, I will just leave you with this. Faculty psychology also helps us just generally to consider our own hearts. Quickly, you could go to Psalm 10, verse 4. But in that passage of Scripture, we read these words. You're welcome to turn there, but I will simply read it. Psalm 10, verse 4. The wicked in his proud countenance does not seek God. God is in none of his thoughts. Well, of course, if, as Owen ultimately argues, the heart in Scripture is taken for the whole rational soul, not absolutely, but as all the faculties of the soul are one common principle of our moral operations, then in one sense we can say when we see the word heart, without doing too much dissection, that there are certain powers that are in view. Think of Genesis 6-5, Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Proverbs 23-7, For as he thinks in his heart, so he is. Proverbs 4-23, Keep your heart with all diligence, for out of it springs the issues of life. Of course, we know that the Ten Commandments are not simply behavioral. They also involve the mind. Jesus would say, But I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already, well, you know, broken the Seventh Commandment. When we understand how we are put together, when we understand the faculties just a little bit more, when we see the connections of heart and thought, it helps us to consider our own Hearts. It helps us as we think even about our own spiritual growth. So I would submit to you that it's helpful for us to have a clear and working definition. Hopefully we have moved the needle just a little further in thinking about what this definition might be. To consider how faculty psychology is not a new concept, but it's worked its way throughout the history of the church. And of course, there are going to be disagreements on it. We'll hear about various and nuanced differences in the next few lectures of all of these concepts. 
But then we've been able to see, hopefully, that this is actually also of practical importance as we consider who we are before the living God. And in doing so, considering the benefit of the renewing of our minds and just how that may impact in our understanding and intellect, the will. Let's pray. Living God, we thank you and praise you that we have the opportunity to come together for these two days and to consider these things. We pray that you would help us as we do so to gain further clarity of both the practical importance of these matters to our our lives, but also that you might enlarge our minds to consider further vistas of understanding the truths that we confess together in our confession, which arise from your word. We thank you that in all of these things, we can together look to Christ, who was and is our perfect and complete substitute. And we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.